Hi everyone, welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and creator of this podcast. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge the ongoing struggles that our Asian American communities have been going through during the recent anti-Asian hate crimes that have been escalating and being brought to the surface. I want to also say that despite the invisibility that these hate crimes have received in mainstream media, there were a number of Asian American community leaders and members and organizations that have amplified their voices to bring light to these issues, whether it's out in the streets, through your workplaces, writing on social media, writing an op-ed, holding Zoom calls, talking with family and community members, doing a podcast, TikTok, YouTube. These different platforms give spaces for our community to build solidarity together and with other communities of color, namely among black and brown communities. Activism is more than just creating noise. It's about finding ways to unlearn and change behaviors, to recognize where our privileges are and what we can do to create equity and lift those who are more marginalized. I'm very proud for moments like these where we can bring our struggles to the surface and transform it into something that will work towards dismantling against anti-Asian violence, white supremacy, and building a collective path towards restorative justice and healing. So for season four, we are continuing with the theme process. And I have about a few episodes left for this season. For this episode, I brought in my guest, Amy M. Lee. Amy is a Vietnamese-American self-published author from Oklahoma City. She is the author of three recently published novels, partly based on her mom's escape from Vietnam and Amy's upbringing in America. Her book trilogy includes Snow in Vietnam, Snow in Seattle, and Snow's Kitchen, a novella and cookbook. We talk about the process of writing her novels and her decision to self-publish. She spoke about the impact of her mother who had passed away recently, and also the recent reconciliation between her and her estranged father, and how her writing has aided in her healing. Her books are available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online independent bookstores. So grab a copy and check out this episode to hear more from Amy and follow her on Instagram at amy underscore m underscore L-E, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash author Amy M. Lee. Trigger warning, this episode contains topics on death, refugee, and colonial trauma. Season 4 is sponsored by Red Scarf Revolution. Red Scarf Revolution aims to bring awareness to the tragedies, atrocities, and cultural destructions the Cambodian people endured from 1975 to 1979 under the Khmer Rouge regime and how that period impacts us today. With that awareness, Red Scarf Revolution advocates the silence, art, music, culture, and language with designs that incite the resiliency of the Cambodian people. Visit them at www.redscarfrevolution.com to check out their merchandise line and to learn more about their work. Follow them, follow them on their Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution or on their Facebook.
Hi everyone. So today I am joined here with my good friend Amy M. Lee. So before I bring her on, I am going to give you uh, an introduction of who she is. So Amy M. Lee was born in Vietnam in July 1974, nine months before the fall of Saigon. In 1979, Amy's mother braved the South China Sea and escaped Vietnam in search of freedom from the Vietnamese communist government. She took Amy, who was then five years old, and Amy's cousin, Tree, with her. They ended up at the Galang refugee camp in Indonesia before getting sponsored to Seattle, Washington in 1980. After college, Amy worked for big tech companies like Microsoft and T-Mobile. But in 2017, Amy's world came crashing down when her mother passed away from lung cancer. Amy took three years off from work to write her mother's story as a way to cope with the loss and to honor her mother's bravery. Amy is the award-winning author of Snow in Vietnam and Snow in Seattle, which are historical women's fiction novels that gives readers an inside view into the trauma of the boat people of Vietnam and the refugee experience of adapting to a new way of life. Amy's final book in the Snow Trilogy is Snow's Kitchen, a novella and cookbook published recently uh, this upcoming December 31st. Written from Amy's voice as a teenager struggling to dovetail two cultures together. It is a coming-of-age story with a collection of family recipes from her mother's kitchen today. And so Amy currently lives in the Oklahoma City area with her family and pets. She is a big fan of UFC and the Seattle Seahawks. Amy is a volunteer at the Care Center, a child advocacy center in Oklahoma County, working with children from abusive environments. She also serves the Oklahoma City Writers, Inc. as their president. With three years of writing and three books under her belt, Amy has permanently transitioned from corporate America to novelist. So I want to start off by saying congratulations on releasing all three of your books uh, most recently. And we connected over the summer, and I'm very thankful, one, for being such a supporter of this podcast, two, for giving me a copy of Snow in Vietnam, which unfortunately I haven't finished yet, but I really enjoyed what I've read so far. And three, uh, for really being a good friend and allowing me to learn more about your work as an author and as a person. So uh, I am really honored to have you on and thank you so much uh, for coming on and I'm looking forward to talking with you. How are you doing today, Amy? Hi, Randy. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I've been a fan since June when I discovered you on uh, We Are Refugees on Facebook. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been amazing to see you grow as a podcaster and to listen to your episodes. And uh, now I'm very excited to be one of your guests. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And how have you been doing uh, through this pandemic? Uh, this 2020 year is about to wind down. And how have you been uh, coping? Well, we've been uh, very blessed to be healthy and uh, have our jobs. Um, we haven't been struggling as much as the rest of the world with this pandemic, but, um, you know, it's definitely hard to limit your travel and your movements and uh, not be able to see family and friends, especially during the holidays. But, uh, you know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel and we're just taking it one day at a time. I think, uh, you know, way, the way this year has been really throwing the alignment off, um, you still manage to stay busy. You have just finished your third book, which is the, uh, the Snow's Cookbook, but you released Snow in Vietnam and Snow in Seattle. So, which to be honest with you, it's such an amazing feat considering that you've done it and you were able to get them published fairly quickly. Um, 
But prior to that, you were working in the tech industry for a number of years. And what led you to center your focus with writing? And what challenges did you face with getting your books published? Well, you know, in 2017, when my mom passed away with lung cancer, um, I couldn't imagine continuing to work because my mom was the central point of, you know, the central point of my life. We, uh, it's always been her in my life. My dad was not really a part of my life. So that was devastating. And um, to do justice for myself as to heal, but also for the company that I worked for, which at the time was T-Mobile, whom I love. Um, it was only fair that I took that time off to grieve and um, reset, you know, and focus. The, the hardest part about publishing was um, deciding whether to go the traditional route or the indie publishing route. And I actually did receive a contract uh, with the Wild Rose Press to publish my first book, my debut, and it was a really hard decision to turn that down because, um, you know, everybody dreams about, about traditional publishing, and in the past, self-publishing was frowned upon, like you couldn't make it if you, you know, self-published, and, but we have more, uh, technology and distributors at our fingertips and we have uh, as an indie publisher we have more resources and so i i'm a member of five different organizations writers groups and through several conferences that i've been to i realized that indie publishing was the way to go for me at least for the first book because it was so dear and true for to my heart you know and I wanted to own it from beginning to end. I wanted to have full control of the cover, the content, um, you know, even control of where I talk, who I talk to, <laughs> um, where I do my book signings, that kind of thing. So, yeah. And then after I did that, I was going to either A, go back to work or B, continue writing. And uh, luckily, my fans uh, wanted a second book. So I started out writing Snow in Seattle as the sequel, and uh, that took me a year to write. And I indie published that one as well, because at that point, I uh, started my own publishing company. And I think one of the reasons why I did that was because I wanted to help other indie authors if they wanted to, to publish. But I also thought that, you know, it just is more professional um, to have an imprint. Um, and uh, so Quillhawk Publishing was was uh, what came out of it. So, but then, you know, second book was done and then <laughs> fans wanted a third book and I really thought I was gonna move on. And um, so Snow's Kitchen, that's that's the novella and cookbook that, that's the last of my trilogy. And then I think next year, uh, after I get through my other goals, uh, I'll start writing again and I have some ideas about what I wanna write about, but yeah. Mm. I think it's such a risky move for any aspiring writer to go the indie route. So what, and I know you have actually mentioned uh, parts of the differences between traditional publishing and indie publishing, but what were some of the key differences? Like what, how much more work did you have to do to promote your first novel uh, versus if you were going through the traditional route? So, you know, there's really not that much difference um, unless you're like J.K. Rowling's or Stephen King or one of the bigger, you know, R.L. Steins of the world. Um, 
from my from what I've heard uh, and from my understanding from other uh, authors who've done the hybrid route they've been traditionally published and self-published they told me that you know you're still in charge of promoting your books and um, doing the marketing yourself there's really not a lot of a uh, lot of resources and support by the traditional publishers and so that's one of the reasons why I was like well if I'm gonna have to do that myself why not indie publish right and honestly Randy when I started this journey I didn't care if I sold any books you know that wasn't the goal the goal really was to uh, self-soothe I guess and be uh, go through this therapeutic journey and learning more about myself discovering you know my history and uh, I'm gonna get choked up and emotional but going through this process um, the more I owned it and the more I was close to it in terms of publishing and writing it the more I realized that um, that was the right path to go because it brought me closer to my mom and understanding her a little bit better. Was your mom aware that you always had an interest in writing? No. <laughs> um, when I was growing up, I, I wrote poetry, I think. Um, nothing, any, nothing good, but just, you know, thoughts, random ramblings of a teenager. Uh, my way of just releasing uh, my feelings because you know you grow up in a traditional family excuse me and you don't get to express yourself you know you're there to to be seen but not heard and uh, you don't have an opinion so and I didn't really have uh, a lot of friends growing up because we moved around a little bit so yeah poetry was my outlet uh, growing up and my mom didn't realize that I uh, dabbled in that you know when I was in college I um, thought I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> and uh, what inspired that thinking was, I think I saw Connie Chen um, on, uh, sorry, Connie Chung on TV. And I thought, you know what, I wanna be like that. I wanna have my own show. I wanna be a, you know, a journalist, whatever. But um, one of my teachers in college told me that I didn't have what it took to become one. So, you know, and at that point, I didn't have um, as much confidence, I don't think, um, as I should have. And I said, oh, okay, well, <laughs> he, he would know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I bagged that. And looking back, in hindsight, I'm glad I wasn't a journalist because I couldn't be an investigative reporter. I couldn't go out in the field and do um, what they do. You know, it's just it's so hard um, being out in the elements, putting your life at risk, um, covering you know all the all the news just to bring it to to you the viewers and so yeah I, I went the technology route I actually got a degree in sociology because I really didn't know what I was going to do and uh, my sociology professor and I had a good relationship and he encouraged me to keep going and because I finally found someone who had my back and who was supportive and saw my potential I was like okay you know Mr. Richardson, I'm going to go into to sociology, and uh, but when I came out, I ended up in the technology space, working for Microsoft, T-Mobile, and a few others. But um, started out actually in recruiting, and then account management, and then I, you know, uh, was an executive assistant for an officer of the company at Microsoft, 
went on to T-Mobile. When I left there, I was supporting the senior leadership team um, in the legal department and managing all of the board meeting logistics and working with the board, board of directors there. So. Mm. And were you also taking uh, writing classes? Were you, uh, were you also looking to go back into school again after your mother's passing? What was the process as you were taking on the responsibility of writing your first novel? Yeah, so when, um, when I decided to write, I actually bought this program. It was an online course about writing fiction. And it had like 30 modules, something ridiculous like that. And I went through each module to learn about um, kind of syntax and different genres and word count, you know, and all this other stuff. And then I also joined um, the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They are the ones that really got me involved with writing because I wanted to be surrounded by other writers to learn as much as I can. And um, I went to their first conference, you know, didn't know anybody, didn't know anything, went to all these different classes. Um, and it just blew my mind how much goes into writing and publishing. Um, and they inspired me to, you know, get a critique team together and um, just start writing. That's all you can do and have your depend on your uh, on your critique team to give you guidance. And uh, I entered a, a contest. It was an unpublished contest for uh, historical fiction. And uh, I was a finalist, actually. Um, didn't place for second or third, but I was a finalist, so that was nice. And uh, took home an award and some recognition. And that just kind of went from there. So it gave me confidence, you know, to, to continue writing. Oh, that's awesome. And when you were writing uh, your first novel, was your mom in the past ever open about talking about her trauma during the Vietnam War and during the refugee resettlement. Uh, I know like when you're writing a book that uh, is about your mother's life, but you also have to kind of turn it into a fiction novel here. So right. I to know what that process was like uh, with the relationship that you had with your mother in talking about her past. And as you were developing her as the main character, Snow, in your book? Um, you know, she, whenever she talked about her life in Vietnam, it was always of happy memories. And so when you read Snow in Vietnam and you uh, get a giggle out of some of the things, some of the scenes or some of the, the uh, dialogue, it's all from her memory of her life with, um, you know, her siblings or um, going shopping at the market, that kind of thing. She never talked about the trauma or the hardships um, per se. And um, so in that sense, I had to do some research. I also had to do interviews, uh, mostly from my cousin, Tree, who filled in a lot of the blank spaces and the holes for me um, as I was piecing this together. Like I didn't know how we came onto the boat to leave Vietnam. I didn't know anything about um, our life at the Galang refugee camp. You know, I didn't even, when I wrote the second book, I had to call my cousin. I was like, okay, so what was day one like when we got off the airplane and landed at SeaTac airport? And, you know, he was like, oh my God, it was so cold. And we were in our, you know, shorts <laughs> coming from the tropics to, uh, to Seattle. So um, yeah, you know, and, 
as I got to know my dad a little bit better, um, he was always in the background. I um, kind of pieced a little bit of his story together as well. And um, so, you know, I published my book in 2019 and 2018 was when my dad and I reconnected. And um, I had to get his permission or his blessing per se. Um, before I actually published it because I told him that he wasn't portrayed in a very good light in the book because it was based on mom's memory and my memory, pretty much that he was absent, you know, and my mom's memory was, um, yes, he was absent, but he also had this other life that she didn't know about in the beginning. Mm. You talk about uh, your family's escape, uh, your mom and your cousin and yourself as a young girl. Do you have any memories of what life was like during Vietnam in the midst of the war? I know you were very young, you were asking questions about your cousin, but did you have any memories that stood out? And what do you know about your mom's escape to uh, escape to uh, escape from Vietnam to America? Well, the, the only couple of memories that I really have of Vietnam is um, I remember being out in the alley, like in the back of our house. Um, whenever it rained, I would be out there showering. <laughs> um, that was one of the things I really remember was, you know, oh, it was a big deal. Like, oh my gosh, it's raining. So you go out there and take a shower <laughs> and clean. And so we were not wasting water. Um, and I, being on the boat itself, I do remember a couple of things. I remember looking down and seeing um, snakes in the, in the water. Um, and being so thirsty that I, you know, tried to drink some of that seawater. Um, yeah, <laughs> not good. Um, I definitely remember being on the island and watching our boat burn. Um, and that's in our book. Um, but basically, we, my mom had pushed me into, or threw me into the water. And uh, my cousin put me on this little piece of wood this driftwood um, and my mom jumped in and she swam to shore and when we got to shore we watched our boat go ablaze because um, you know we burned our boat because we didn't want to be kicked off the island if if the officials didn't have anywhere to send us or put us you know they would have to let us stay there for a while until they figured out what to do with us mm. so those were the chances that we took and you know it's like you don't want to go back out in the open seas too when there's uh, you're all you're with the elements of of the um the rainstorms and the pirates and the everything else that's out there just being lost we actually had only one engine that was working and it was starting to fail we had there, you know and so we were really really scared and that was so i do remember that but um mm. what was the final piece of your question randy i, I guess like I guess because I'm like right now, I'm so enthralled by just what you were just sharing. But um, I, I guess like when you're trying to conjure up early memories uh, of Vietnam or what that was like at a very young age, but also having to learn about your mom's history, like how did they escape? Um, and, and learning about how... Um, uh, what the uh, environment was like during the time of the 
conclusion of the war and when yeah. that was just happening because I mean when I think about you know my mom's family escape uh, my mom's family uh, my grandfather who was working in in the Viet the South Vietnamese army you know their family was in get was in danger of getting arrested my uncle at the time mm -hmm. was sent to jail and that was a red flag to the family that we have to get out of here um, so they were on the boat they snuck overnight when there was like I guess a a town meeting and I think they bribed one of the uh, soldiers so that they can flee into the night and mm -hmm. it was a terrifying journey I mean, they talk they talk they told me about the storms that were happening they wow. thought that they were going to drown at any point during their voyage and the pirates you know you think yeah. that the comes from pirates of the caribbean you know and all that glorious 15th century uh, yeah the, the the kind of things that you hear in 15th century <clears throat> but it was a real situation there was a real danger of your life ending in the water yeah and yep. never able to reach land and never not being able to know where you're going to land to are you going to land in thailand where the refugee camps were very dangerous um where you're going to land in malaysia where you're going to land in indonesia the philippines i mean so yeah you just don't know any of them did not have compasses <laughs> nope <laughs> you know when um when saigon fell you know april 30 1975 and um my mom so my dad let me start with this my dad uh actually was married to an american woman at the time which my mom didn't know about until afterwards and uh she took my dad and uh their son back to the states and so it was just my mom and me and our uh, immediate family and in order to survive my mother had to uh, take stolen goods you know medicine contraband things that were left behind by the u.s um and at the at the ports and all these pallets of you know um medicine whatever supplies and she would sell those um, illegally of course in the black market and that was how my mom survived and she would always um it was a very sensitive topic for her because I always tease. I was like, oh, mama, you were a drug dealer. You were selling drugs. And, you know, half of her was like shocked that I would even say that because it was true. Um, but the other half of her was just, you know, she just wanted to forget about it and, and like to think that she was just selling, you know, other things, <laughs> but she wasn't very specific about those other things. Um, when we my mom's attempt to escape it was thwarted many many times um but when she finally succeeded i guess there were three groups that were supposed to secretly rendezvous at a particular point um the other two groups got caught and our group luckily made it and uh, uh actually you know now that i think about it i do remember one point uh, which is also in my book um, I remember a lady screaming and yelling and we were looking through the bushes hiding in the jungle and I could see um, one of the Viet Cong or one of the communist soldiers you know um, forcing money down her throat and as uh, she's begging and screaming to you know to to, to live and um, 
he was yelling at her saying, you know, if you want to, if you want freedom and you want money and you want, you know, this life so badly, then here you go. Oh, Eve was shoving it down her throat. Um, but we, we eventually got on the boat and I do remember the smell. It was, it was so bad. We were hiding underneath the, the bottom portion of the boat and, um, I just remember everything from people vomiting to, you know, going to the bathroom in the very place that they were sitting and we were jam packed together like sardines and you couldn't move and you're sweaty, right? Cause it's hot and humid and just the, the fear emanating from your pores. I mean, I'm just combining all that and it just, uh, it just was horrendous. But when we finally got out to the open seas and we were safe, which took a little bit of time because my cousin said that, there were a bunch of AK-47s firing at us, and um, so it was pretty scary. But once we got out, and uh, I just remember, like, climbing on top of people to try to get out because I needed fresh air. I was just, you know, in pain. <laughs> um, I was also a very weak and uh, uh, sickly child. You know, I was born with a hole in my heart, and... Um, there was no way to save me and the doctors basically said that I was slowly dying and that I would probably die by the age of five and so that was my mom's biggest motivation was to uh, not only leave the country for safety and freedom but to get me medical care and um, she didn't know where she was going to get it but her sights were on the U.S. On, in America and uh, luckily that's where we ended up and Literally, I think we landed in, we got into March, we landed into Seattle in March, and uh, in August was when I was rushed to the hospital to have open heart surgery. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So. How many days were you out in the sea, and how long did you and your mom stay in the refugee camps? Um, <clears throat> we were out in the sea about five days. Uh, we actually... When our first engine died, we ended up uh, on one side of the Indonesian islands, and uh, they gave us some rice. There was about 40, 43 people on the boat, tiny little rickety, you know, shrimp vessel. And uh, they gave us a couple of cups of rice, and uh, pretty much that was it, sent us off, you know. Uh, we were in the refugee camp, I think, six months. Now, in my book, I put a year. Um, and the reason why I did a year is because there was a lot I wanted to cover, um, not just my mom's story, but other boat refugee stories. Um, and I wanted to be more of a holistic view of the refugee experience at these camps. And so I extended the stay for a year, but our family stayed there for six months. And then when we were finally sponsored by a church in Seattle, we were transported over to um, the refugee camp in in uh, Singapore on Hawkins Road and we were there for two weeks and my cousin said it was like living this you know glorious dream where we had room service and um, we got to play you know there was plenty of uh, food and water and uh, it was it was a miracle and when you arrived in Seattle what was Seattle like for you when you first arrived was there a Vietnamese community back then? And yeah. With, and how many refugees do you think you were with that were transported over to Seattle, a place that I'm sure your mom knew nothing about? And 
and the culture and I mean, you're going into a foreign land, you don't know what's going to happen the next day. And I know yeah. my mom's family and my dad, uh, they came in both separately and there was no time for them to grieve and to process. It was more like three days later, you have a job, there's a factory, you need to work. And the sponsors usually have to help them learn how to use the bank, mm -hmm. uh, learn how to use the bathroom. Um, I mean, all the basic necessities. It, it, there was a lot of re-education that was happening among this yeah. refugees. So I wonder what was it like uh, stepping aboard into Seattle and what was that transition what was that like? like? Well, I, we were there in Seattle for um, seven years. And in those seven years, I only had one Vietnamese friend. <laughs> and it was a boy, our next door neighbor. His name was Hong, H-U-N-G. Um, and that was it. Like I, everybody was, uh, you know, light skinned. And uh, I don't even remember seeing an African-American or a black child at all. I had one friend who, uh, Nadra Ahmed, I remember her. She, um, she was from Saudi Arabia. And uh, I remember her because she had this birthmark on half of her face that she was very self-conscious about. And we became friends because I was the only Vietnamese person there, only Asian person there, and I was very self-conscious too. And so we just kind of, you know, found each other. Um, but yeah, there wasn't, it was pretty, pretty lonely. You know, there wasn't any Asian markets. The nearest store was Safeway grocery store and uh, a convenience store and a gas station. And that was it. And so I played with a lot of uh, friends who were actually now that I think about it, there was um, an adopted child that was black um, in our apartment complex. <laughs> but that was it. That was not a lot of minorities or ethnic, um, you know, backgrounds there. How did it affect your um, ability to interact with white peers? Because it must have been very daunting to come to school and not being able to speak the English language, not being familiar with uh, certain Western traditions like Halloween, Christmas, uh, things that you were very much not familiar with, that you weren't taught yeah. as a young kid, but now you had to assimilate. And assimilation to me is, is a very traumatic experience. It's a whole yeah. other level of trauma because for your mom, she had no time to heal and her mode was still in survival and there's pressure on you to have a much better life than she did mm -hmm. and you were the only child so it must have played a very difficult uh it must have played a very difficult set of circumstances for you to navigate all through these emotions and were you always very close with your mother or were you always in conflict in a way because her being a single mother and you needing to do well in school and being able to survive on your yeah. own eventually and get married? And I would like to know what that must have been like. Uh, growing well, up. it was scary in the beginning, you know, I mean, I was... I went to first grade at uh, Springbrook Elementary School in Kent, and I remember crying 
because I didn't understand any English. Um, when we were living with my sponsors, you know, and my mom was out trying to find a job or um, go to school, she, or my sponsor would like carry me around the house because I would point to the windows and the doors and he would carry me to the windows and doors and I would look out and I would, you know, ask for my mama and she would never come home. And so that was really a lonely and scary experience. And I remember um, being in school, I thought that if I, you know how like you puff up your chest and you try to make yourself bigger than you actually are? <laughs> I was a pretty mean brat, I think, um, in elementary school because I, that was my defense mechanism. I didn't smile that much in the beginning and um, didn't talk to anybody, um, just kind of heads down, focus on, you know, whatever. And I would take advantage of other kids. Like my mom would bring home food and candy, for example, and I would charge the neighborhood kids, you know, 50 cents a piece and make some money off of them. <laughs> um, I was saving up for a Cabbage Patch doll. So <laughs> there you go. But um, as, as I started to integrate a little bit more and learn English, you know, it became a little bit more easy. The hard part, I think, was seeing my American friends having sleepovers or um, eating all the junk food that they want and I couldn't, you know, or getting certain gifts for Christmas and not being able to get those or having new clothes at um, the stores and I was getting the homemade mom sewing stuff and she was just at that early stage where she was trying to learn how to sew. <laughs> so that was embarrassing. Um, my Halloween costumes were homemade, you know, there'd be like patchwork. Um, like she made me a cape one year because I wanted to be some superhero. I don't know, but my cape was like, had different patch patterns on there and uh, it was embarrassing, but whatever. Um, and in the beginning, I clung to my mom because, you know, she was all I knew and we were very, very close. But as time went on, it became a situation where, you know, she was very traditional, um, you know, her word was the law, and I couldn't speak back to her, I couldn't speak my mind, I had to keep my mouth shut and just swallow everything. Um, I got spanked a lot. She used to, and that's how we were disciplined, right? Um, she would, if, if I get got caught in a lie, she would make me lay down on my stomach and she would take out the yardstick and whip me. <laughs> um, but then she would feel guilty afterwards and just cry. And I felt conflicted too, because I was like, well, if you feel so bad, why are you hurting me? You know? Um, and the last time that she spanked me was when I dared to take a frying pan and stuck it down my pants. And mind you, I was like probably eight years old or something like that, but I thought she wouldn't notice. <laughs> so I got a frying pan and I put it down my pants and she saw, you know, that it didn't look right. <laughs> and it just made her laugh. And she was like, all right, I'll never spank you again. But, but I learned, you know, that mom was the law. She did a good job, I think, uh, at being a single parent. Yeah, and what was, what was your mom's experience like in dealing with the transition with the refugee resettlement period? I, I can only imagine how difficult it really was to not be in that community where she could 
find Vietnamese communities and yeah. not being able to uh, live outside of work besides raising you? You know, I think uh, we were one of the luckier ones because our next door neighbor was Vietnamese. We lived in um, an apartment complex that was subsidized by the government. And so there were a lot of low income families there. And our next door neighbor was a single mom um, who had, you know, the Vietnamese son who I became friends with. And so my mom definitely had her to, uh, to socialize with. But um, the other thing about my mom was she, she knew some English, so she didn't feel completely isolated. When we were in Vietnam, she was the only child. She was the youngest of seven. She was the only one to get a college education. She went to Saigon and went to the university. She um, studied math and uh, taught math uh, in central Vietnam. She learned English. She actually became a Catholic also. You know, she wasn't Buddhist. So she was totally swimming upstream and going against the trends there uh, against her family. And so I'm not surprised that she's the only one that made it out of the country, you know, because she was just so hell bent on um, doing her thing, mostly for me, for my, for the healthcare. So when we got to, to America, um, my sponsors, whom I just discovered uh, last week had passed away. Um, I think one passed in 2018, the other one 20, 2009, something like that. But anyway, they were always very supportive of us and um, taught us, you know, so much in terms of English and giving us the right connections. The church was amazing. I remember the Presbyterian church. We would go every Sunday and I would have to go off to Sunday school and learn how to sing and learn the Bible um, stories and, and that kind of thing. Um, so integration from that perspective wasn't that hard because we had a pretty good network of supporters. Um, the hardest part, I think, is waiting for my mom to get a job so that she could get off of welfare and support ourselves, support us, you know. And she did. After a year, she actually got a job with the Seattle Times, the newspaper and uh, she was their media coordinator, which was pretty cool because she would bring home um, articles and I would help her place the articles and position, position them uh, on the paper and some of the advertising, you know, I would put certain advertisements in certain places to make it try to fit <laughs> to the paper. I can see why you were going into journalism in, in a sense. I guess so, huh? I never really thought about that, but I was exposed to paper or news <laughs> at an early age. Yeah, and and you also have your child, um, Preston, who is 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And as you got older, and as your mom, uh, before her death, what was she like as a grandmother? And what was your relationship like with her prior to her passing? And again, I'm, I, my condolences, you know. Thank with, you. With your mother, I know that this is a very difficult topic to talk about, but... Um, what can you say about your and prior to her death and what were you able to come away with in your relationship with her? Yeah, my mom was, um, <laughs> she was very, very excited when she found out um, that I was having a baby. So my mom, you know, she's funny. She, when I told her that I was wanting to have a family but not get married, um, and this is because I was married once 
to a very abusive man. And so when Joe came into the picture, um, I was like, you know, I would really like to start a family and have a child, particularly a son. That was my dream was to have a boy. Um, but I really didn't want to get married again. And mom was like, having gone through her own uh, relationship issues, she was like, just do what makes you happy. You know, I'm okay if you're not married. Um, we ended up getting married, of course. But so when Preston came along, she lived in West Seattle. I lived in Kirkland at the time, which was on the other side of the bridge. Um, she actually had to cross two bridges to get to me. But so Monday through Friday, she would come over and take care of uh, baby and me. And then Saturday and Sunday, she would go home and, you know, <laughs> decompress and get re-energized and then do it all over again. And as, as, we, as Preston got older, we started to come over to her place, you know, and he would spend the weekends with her. So she got a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with her grandson. And uh, they bonded so much that when my mom passed and we decided to move and move to Oklahoma, Preston refused to leave the house. He clung to the door and he screamed. And this is, mind you, like 10 o'clock at night. And he screamed and he's like, I, I don't want to leave because grandma is in there. Grandma died there and her spirit's there and I have to be there to take care of her. Um, so yeah, they were, they were very close. And uh, I will say that my mom, as, as mean as I was to her, because I was going through a lot in my life. And I didn't understand why she had certain point of views, um, why she wasn't supportive of me in certain ways or certain things. And, uh, you know, we went through a period where I was just so angry all the time. Starting when I was 13 years old, I was angry all the time. And I think when you read my third book, you'll understand why. But she never stopped loving me, you know, and she always forgave me and she always tried to see my perspective on things. Um, and in the end, it was just like, you know, love conquers all. She, uh, I think once you have a child, you understand that there's a bond between the parent and the child that's, that can't be broken. And I think that one day if Preston ever goes astray or he goes through this period where he hates his parents, you know, I'm going to hopefully understand that and, and be patient and love him enough that he'll come back. Um, so the way she taught me was to be humble and to be patient. And at the end of the day, love and forgiveness conquers everything, you know. The power of forgiveness is truly remarkable. I also <laughs> think about this a lot with my own parents, too, because I struggled with my parents a great deal. And yet, despite whatever hell that I've given them and how they've given me, we've found ways to forgive each other in a way that works. <laughs> for both of us on a mutual level. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder, because there is, this is something that I always come back to that we never think that our parents would help heal us because we see them as the perpetrators of harm in our difficult moments. But then we also realize that they can 
also be the ones that end up healing us. Mm-hmm. Not every, now I want to say that not every adult child has had that opportunity. Unfortunately, not every parent and adult child have had that kind of reconciliation. But I think that's an important part to point out. And I think it's so beautiful that you shared this. And I'm really thankful that you were able to share this uh, part of your life that's so intimate and so personal and, and so meaningful to your to your son, who as a little kid needed that love. And you were also helping to honor your mom's memory through this uh, wonderful book that you wrote. Um, but in Reconciliation, you also talk about your father Oh, who you haven't seen and been connected with for for many years. Um, right. I mean, and he had a second life. To you and your mom, it was betrayal. And when you were struggling as a teenager growing up and you see uh, your classmates being with their dads, it, you must have felt some kind of way and some kind of level of anger that mm-hmm. you did this to me. But yeah. Following your mom's death, what actually led you to make the decision to reconnect with your father? And what was that uh, meeting like when you first met him for the first time? Yeah, so my dad was kind of in and out of our lives uh, as I was growing up. He was just this mysterious figure. Like, I knew he was my dad, but we didn't have that connection, you know. And... I went on with my life, went to high school, college, you know, dating, all that other stuff. And my mom and him kept in contact over the years. And uh, he had flown up to Seattle to visit her a couple of times. But to be honest, the it wasn't until after my mom passed, which was February 2017, um, that my dad started to be more active in my life and what how that came about was he called my cell phone one day, left me this frantic message telling me that he hasn't heard back from my mom for a long time, that uh, she hasn't returned any of his phone calls and he was really worried. And, you know, and so imagine I'm just working and all of a sudden I get this phone call from my dad who doesn't say, Hey, how are you doing? How's life treating you? It's, you know, where the hell is your mom and why isn't she calling me back? Out of curiosity, if I don't mind interrupting, what was the relationship between your mom and your dad prior to her death then? Because if he's still contacting her, I I wonder about what was he. Yeah. Um, so my dad was married to Lynette, um, which is another interesting, crazy story, Randy, but uh, they were married. And I think as time went on, their relationship kind of went in different directions. And um, he, he has extreme guilt. He feels extreme guilt. And he, I think he wanted to be a part, be a part of my mom's life in a way that he was seeking forgiveness and friendship um, from her. And, uh, and I think in the end, that's what happened is that, you know, they were able to resolve their issues and be friends again and be cordial. And he wanted to be a part of our lives and be supportive, but he didn't know how, uh, nor was he successful because we didn't want him to 
be supportive. You know, like we made it on our own all these years. We don't need you now. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they would talk on the phone, um, just, you know, keeping tabs on each other really. Um, but when my mom passed and he left me that voicemail message, I really debated on whether I was going to call him back or not. I thought, I mean, a part of me was being spiteful. I was like, eh, you know, why should I care? Why should I call him back and tell him what's going on? But uh, I decided that that wasn't the right thing to do. And I called him. But as soon as I heard his voice, I immediately shut down again. And I was, I just told him, you haven't heard from mom because she's dead. That's what I said to him. And complete silence on the other side, uh, on the other end, you know, and he was driving um, and he said, you know, I'm driving and I'll call you back. I was like, all right. Well, it took him almost a week to call me back. Um, I think he was certainly processing it and uh, mourning and feeling a lot of guilt. But when he called me back and he asked me how it happened or what happened and, you know, that's, that just opened up the dialogue for us. Um, and then in January of 2018, I, I and two other friends were driving from Seattle to uh, McKinney, Texas. And the purpose was to help one of our friends relocate. She was leaving T-Mobile and um, going to go to Texas to still work for T-Mobile, but for the Metro PCS brand. And uh, anyways, when we were in Texas and my dad lives in San Antonio, I was like, you know, would you mind if we just swung through San Antonio, which wasn't an easy thing. It was a few hours drive. Um, we got to San Antonio and my dad knew I was coming because I arranged that. And as soon as he opened up the door, he just broke down in tears. And here's this, you know, 80 year old man just crying, um, big toddler tears. And he just embraced me and he said, I'm so sorry. And he just cried and wept and I didn't know what to do. I was stunned. Um, my two friends behind me were in tears and it took me a while to cry because I just didn't know how to deal with it. You know, all, all these years I have been bottling it up and holding it inside. Um, but we finally cried and came to terms and I walked into the house, uh, not even a house, it was a tiny little apartment. It was really sad to see my dad uh, living in a little tiny apartment because he and Lynette had split, they divorced. And his uh, kids didn't want anything to do with him at that time because they didn't understand why he divorced his mom, their mom, and why he even had this other life where, you know, another wife, another child situation. Um, but I walked into the apartment and I see on the veneration table this picture of my dad's mom and it was creepy as hell because she looked exactly like me. <laughs> I'm looking at my grandma and she looks just like me or I look just like her I should say. Um, it was really really weird but we ended up we ended up talking for only half an hour. My girlfriends dropped me off. They went to go find something to eat and to do a little bit of light shopping but 30 minutes later I called them and I said pick me up now I can't deal with this right now and they had to turn around and come get me because it was just so overwhelming you know to be in that little apartment with just my dad and 
him wanting to talk but not knowing what to say and me being awkward and you know his English is really really good and so we ended up speaking English the entire time mm. um, wow. which is also really weird you know <laughs> because we both can speak Vietnamese just not for me I speak probably like a little six-year-old seven-year-old Vietnamese girl mm. um, but enough to get by and understand and for your father what did you end up learning about him as you were uncovering his past? Because I think when you were learning to reconcile, you had to have asked all these questions. Why yeah. did you, why did you, how did you? But I wonder what his life was like. <clears throat> Do you think might have led for him to live a different life and the traumas that he could not uh, come to terms with that unfortunately affected your family and his other family? So my dad, uh, I hope to one day write his story because his story also needs to be told. When he was 10 years old, I think it was 10, maybe a little younger, um, he witnessed his mom getting raped by a French soldier. That traumatized him, obviously. And, um, you know, the family was very poor and hungry and didn't have enough to eat. And he ran away from home to live on the streets because he didn't want to be a burden to his mom and didn't want to, you know, her to have one more child to take care of or worry about and feed, clothe, whatever. So he ran away. Um, he ended up living on the streets and would steal from the market vendors. Um, he was, he loved to study though. And so he would go to school and uh, fought hard for his grades. You know, a lot of the kids there got special treatment because of who their family were or who their parents were. Um, but he was just a street rat. You know, he told me he would study under the street lamps and uh, go to school. And sometimes he would be so tired, he would sleep at the school. And some of the teachers would take pity on him and let him sleep at the school at night. Um, as he got older, he ended up defending those same street vendors that he stole from, from other street bugs, you know. And so they started paying him money for protection. And then as he got older after that, um, he won a scholarship. Um, he was the only one who rightfully, he, according to my dad, rightfully earned that scholarship through hard work. And he got to go to, to uh, America to study for, I don't know if it was a full year, but a pretty long chunk of time. And that's when he met Lynette and they started dating and uh, she fell madly in love with him. But then it was time for him to go back, you know, to Vietnam. And so he flew back. She was so in love with him that she purchased a one-way ticket to Vietnam to find him. Um, in the middle of a war, in the middle of the Vietnam War, <laughs> she took a one-way ticket there and uh, found him. Um, and Lynette is a, an amazing woman. She passed from uh, Parkinson's disease a few years back, but she was super smart and uh, spoke Vietnamese, ended up speaking Vietnamese very fluently. She translated works. She uh, wrote children's books that were of Vietnamese uh, folklore origin. Um, but she had this life with my dad and this was in Saigon and we lived in Travin, um, which is closer to the Mekong Delta. And he got a teaching job out there and my grandfather was the principal at this school and it was the uh, principal's responsibility to 
um, sometimes take in these teachers, you know, and let them stay at the house. And so that's how he, my dad met my mom and he fell madly in love with my mom and uh, they ended up getting married. And so he had these two wives, <laughs> you know, two different lives. And, uh, but when the war uh, was coming to a close, Lynette took her family back to the States. And so that's kind of how that story happened. And your dad was a body was a bodybuilder, and I looked at past photos of him. He was very physique, which is, which is very contrast to the very short, thin Vietnamese man that you would normally see in photos. And mm -hmm. but I, I wonder, uh, I wonder about that kind of life that he lived, and and also what is your relationship with uh, with him like now, and also with uh, Preston, and how is his relationship with him with him as a grandfather. Yeah. So in Vietnam, excuse me, he definitely was very uh, fit. And I don't know why, but he he was, again, like kind of like my mom, right? Going against the grain of things. Um, he loved to work out. He was always health conscious, you know, very, um, very determined in, in staying alive and keeping fit. Um, he fought for the Viet Minh for a while and I think this is where his guilt came in is that he actually had to kill a lot of people and he confessed to eating um, human organs before and doing some of the things he did to lure the enemy out um, and kill him. So his life is a little crazy. And so he's always been health conscious. He actually owned his own nutrition shop. That's uh, what he had in Texas. Um, kind of like a GNC, you know, he sold all those, uh, supplements and um anyway so Preston has only met my dad twice and um both times it was in a January 2018 and January 2019 when I flew him up from San Antonio to Oklahoma City and uh when he met Preston for the first time you know he was very emotional and uh I don't think Preston knew how to handle that. <laughs> um, my dad speaks very good English. And so, and he's 85 years old. I mean, he is still kicking and still sharp. My goodness. He, his mind is sharp. I mean, his eyes are going, but he'll read my books with a big old magnifying glass, you know? And um, he's funny because he'll tell me that he'll walk around the block at his daily exercise with, with the COVID thing and with him worrying that he might, you know, just suddenly have dementia and not how to get back home. He's, uh, he doesn't get as much exercise as he used to, but. Does he still work at the gym? The, 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 uh, at the, uh... No, he's, he doesn't have his shop anymore. And uh, that was in Houston. Now he's in San Antonio and um, he's retired. You know, he doesn't really do anything. He says, it's kind of sad because my dad says, as you get older, your world just gets smaller and smaller. You know, people around you die, your kids move on and your relationship falls apart. And the next thing you know, you're in this tiny apartment all by yourself with nothing to do but listen to music. And that's what he does. He takes his naps, he takes his, you know, supplements. He has the same, he eats the same thing every single day. Like in the morning, he'll have his, um, his half a yam and a boiled egg. You know, I mean, he's very regiment. Um, but the funny thing too, not funny, but, ironic, I guess, is that he's also type two diabetic. Um, 
And so, you know, everything he's been doing to this point to take care of his, himself, he still can't escape diabetes. Um, and so if you're, if you ever see a T. Willem comment on my Facebook page, nine out of 10 times, it's always about my food, how I shouldn't be cooking something that has cholesterol and fat and, you know, red meat and <laughs> sugars, you know, like the other day I posted something about Joe being sick. And I said, you know, I made him congee and apple pie. And my dad commented, he's like, you know, congee is good, but apple pie, not so good or something like that. And it's like, I could, I just, I hold my breath because I know at some point he's going to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> so since becoming an author, what kind of impact has it had on you as a person? And what surprised you most about being an author? Um, one of the coolest things that I've discovered is that there are now so many authors that are, um, that are Asian. You know, I mean, you grow up reading the classics and uh, whatever the hottest book is of the of the deck or of the year. And when I uh, started writing my book, I was like, "Are there any other Vietnamese or you know Chinese or any other Asian authors out there?" And and to my surprise, there are. And so this year, 2020, has been all about trying to read as many Asian author. Uh, you know, books as I could. And that's what helped me discover like Phuc Tran's, you know, Saigon um, book and uh, Gwing, Shang Kui Mai's book, you know, The Mountain Sing. So yeah, it's been an amazing journey. Oh gosh, like reading Phuc Tran's <clears throat> book just opened up a lot of Pandora's box for me. I, I had to <laughs> take a deep breath before I would dive in, but it's a book that you cannot put down. And I would plug his book too, because I think it's an, it's an excellent uh, memoir. And I got so much out of that book. Uh, the Mountain Sing, I do need to get that book. I've heard so many wonderful things about it. Um, and actually, I've been just grieving the loss of one of our uh, rising writers in the Khmer American community. His name is uh, Anthony v uh, Vesna So. And hmm. He was only 28 when he passed. I had followed him on Instagram for a few years, and he had actually um, uh, posted his uh, his uh, mini fiction work on the New Yorker. He did a podcast on it, and then uh, it was done as a written form. Mm -hmm. But he was actually got a big deal with a publisher hmm. about a few months ago, and his upcoming book, After Parties, is, is supposed to come out next August. And he just passed away recently. I mean, we don't know the cause of death, but it's huh. deeply tragic when you wow. see a Southeast Asian voice of our generation go. And I think for, you know, the Cambodian community, it's very sensitive because we've lost so many artists during the genocide and we're just starting to get our footprint back. But also mm -hmm. in the overall Southeast Asian community, when we're writing stories about our parents and our grandparents and our story included and when we still when we lose one of them and we lost like a few other artists to COVID earlier this year it's devastating like yeah impact like gosh you know we're we're making our footprint but then it feels like we've taken a few steps back and I think that the, yep. a lot of urgency in us to write our stories and I think what we shared earlier, like in another conversation, is that if we don't write our stories, then 
the stories will be told by white researchers, white journalists, people who have no emotional connection to our work and our experiences, our lived experiences. And I think that what you're doing and what other writers are doing are so critical to that. And I'm really glad for that. Would you ever consider going back into a traditional publisher now that you've been an indie publisher for the last few years? That's a good question. Um, for the right book, maybe. I mean, one of the books that I wanted to write, that I started to write, but I had to put it down, uh, was a story, it's called The Copper Phoenix. And it's copper for my friend who's got red hair. And uh, Phoenix is about her rising out of a very dysfunctional and um, abusive um, home, you know, and lifestyle uh, full of sexual abuse, full of drugs, physical abuse, like all, everything. And I think that's... Um, one book that I would consider traditionally publishing if there's a publisher out there that would take something on like that because it's not a memoir. It is written as a fiction piece um, because I want it to have the attention that it deserves. And I think maybe a traditional publish would, publisher would be able to do that more than, than I could. But we'll see, it really depends on my friend who you know, what she wants me to do with, with her story. Um, gosh. The thing about traditional publishing is you have to go through this pitch process, right? You got to pitch your work to editors and agents, and then you wait. It's a waiting game. With my first novel, I pitched um, to 30 editors and agents. Um, I got five nods that said, hey, send, this sounds amazing. Send me your manuscript. And every single one of them rejected it. You know, uh, it was either, it was really interesting because they'll be like, we want a story that is um, own voices and diverse and different. But they read so many manuscripts every day, you know, and if you're writing doesn't grab them in the first page or the first paragraph even they'll they'll chuck it and sometimes when you pitch they have the right of first refusal so you're sitting there for months waiting for them to say yay or nay and nine out of ten times or ten out of ten times it's a no you know um so it's agony and i now that i've been published uh self-published for three years or three books i don't think i have the patience for that because and again you know my my goal is not to sell a bazillion books and get famous though I would love to see snow in Vietnam uh, on the screen because I feel like that's something that America hasn't seen yet you know and it's it's a story that needs to be told and it's it would open up so many voices and dialogue uh, if it was and even if it's not my book just something that is from the internal perspective uh, versus the external point of view. So. And I mean, I think in the world of publishing and the way people consume books is very different. Everything is digital. And, and during the time of the pandemic, a lot of the mom and pop bookstores are being threatened into extinction. I really hope not mm -hmm. because I still buy 
books traditionally. I'm old fashioned that way. And Thank you. Great. Yes. Important to also support independent local bookstores. Um, and I hope that like books like yours can find homes in these places. And, and I think that, that, um, that there's so many different new avenues that of how your work gets distributed, right? And, mm -hmm. and I wonder what advice would you give to really any aspiring writer, especially those in the Asian American communities? Because oftentimes you hear, okay, we're starting to get more Asian writers, but there's still a glass ceiling or bamboo ceiling. And there is, unfortunately, um, a lot of publishers are predominantly white and, and there's still a lot of systemic racism issues in writing and also what gets read in schools. Mm -hmm. That's also another uh, layer. But I, I wonder what advice would you give uh, uh, to any person who wants to get into writing? And what advice would you give to yourself now that you have gone through the um, gone through the turnstile of dealing with rejections mm -hmm. and dealing with the politics of publishing and how uh, important creative autonomy or creative rights are to you? Well, one of the advice that I would give to aspiring writers is um, to write it, <laughs> right? I mean, it's simple. It could be that you only have 10 minutes a day. Set that timer and allow yourself no distractions for 10 minutes, and you're going to find that that 10 minutes is going to turn to 30 minutes or an hour even. Um, and I guarantee you, your voice has not been heard before. You may think that oh, there's other stories out there about boat refugees, about war, about, you know, slavery, about whatever it is. Um, but there's so many dimensions and facets and point of views and voices. Um, and it could be in the form of historical fiction. It could be a memoir. It could be poetry, whatever. I, I just think that you need to, to write it. Um, one of the best advice that I ever got from my stepmother, Lynette, before she passed, because she was a writer and a published author, you know, she said that if you have a story, don't tell anybody about it. Don't talk about it because once you do, once the story is out, you're not going to want to write it. Um, you, that need to tell the story is gone. Um, so I would just keep that close to your heart and start writing. Um, and then when you're ready to publish, I would honestly explore all avenues of publishing. I think it's a very good experience to go through the traditional route because it, you learn so much about um, the industry and about rejection and you learn about yourself at, in terms of how resilient you are um, and what you do with that rejection, you know. Um, and ultimately, find the right home for your book, whether it be self-publishing or not, or having other self-publishers uh, help you because um, only you know what your vision is for your story and you know you may get a lot of rejections and you may get a lot of acceptances but finding the right person who's going to support you and help you endorse that book and get that story out there is, is super important thank you so much for that uh insight that you share about uh distributing publishing and i think this is very important for so many aspiring writers to know about uh, what this entails and what should one be prepared for in going through this uh, work. So with that said, what future projects are you currently working on uh, for 2021? 
2021, um, I really, really want to do an audiobook of Snow in Vietnam. And, you know, I have someone in mind, but she's just as busy as I am, more so actually. And so um, whether she reads and narrates or I do it myself, uh, come hell or high waters, <laughs> this book is going to get an audiobook. Um, I also want to really see snow in Vietnam on the screen. And again, it's because I think the story needs to be told. Um, so whether I write the screenplay or I hire someone else, or if somebody wants to freelance it for me, I would love to get a script done. And, you know, I mean, there's so many projects that I want to do. I want to write a children's book, uh, a series called Bus Stop Buddies. I want to write my Copper Phoenix. You know, I want to do this 20, uh, 1920s piece um, that I've been kind of playing around in my head. So there's a lot of ideas there, but you know, one thing at a time and one year at a time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and and also with your uh, son Preston, what do you or what does he know about your family's past and your past, and and does he feel or do you feel like he is starting to understand the story that you went through and also with your writing and why it was so important for you to, to release yeah. the book. I think he has, uh, he's starting to build a foundation of understanding because when I was on uh, the Vietnamese Boat People podcast, I made him listen to my episode, but I also had him listen to um, other episodes, you know, for that season. Um, I had him also listen to, I think, one or two of your episodes, Randy. I don't remember which one. Um, but so he's starting to understand. And I know that, you know, in school, he's starting to learn a few things. Recently, he uh, was learning about North Korea and the defectors. Um, and I was surprised when I came home from work one day and he was telling me about how he was watching this documentary and it moved him to tears. You know, he was crying in class and he was... Uh, telling me about how if he grew up in North Korea, he doesn't think he would live long enough to be past 21, 22 years old because he thinks that he probably would either A, kill himself, B, be killed, or, you know, die trying to leave <laughs> um, and escape. And that brought us to, you know, my mom's escape from Vietnam. And he's like, Mama, I really want to read your books when I'm old enough to read them. And, uh, yeah, so he's he's starting to get there, but I think, and I, you know, both my books that I've published so far and the third one that's coming, um, they're all dedicated to him uh, and my husband, of course, but I've autographed it for him so that I hope that as he gets older and, you know, when I'm gone, when I'm at, when I've passed on, that he can have a little bit of history and a little bit of me left to hold on to and pass it on to his children. Mm so beautiful and i really appreciate you taking us on your journey through your parents through your journey and also through your sons and it's so it's such a it's such a cyclical way of being able to round out this conversation and and also one of the things i want to bring up is that uh before i uh let you go is you are a big foodie you love to <laughs> i look at your instagram and i am left starving <laughs> it's pretty it's amazing i do hope that people get to follow your work which i'm going to ask you know where people can follow you here uh, but i i would love 
for you to you know share a little bit of your passion for cooking because it's like you could really own your own restaurant or pastry shop. Ah, thank you. That's what my son says. He's he's so funny. But so I actually wasn't interested in cooking at all until I had a family of my own. You know, until Joe and I got married. Like my mom, I was a late bloomer in terms of uh, learning how to cook and be domesticated because <laughs> uh, I was a wild child. But when I no longer had my mom to cook for me, you know, and I had a, two mouths to feed plus me, I guess, three mouths, um, I really started to dabble into uh, different different recipes. And, and to be honest, like my mother-in-law is the most amazing woman also super strong, super independent. She'll spin her own wool and make something beautiful. You know, um, she has this amazing garden and it's like every day fresh out of the garden, she's cooking something. Uh, she's the kind of person that will roll her own dough. I mean, she's just <laughs> amazing. And so I felt a little intimidated, you know, and there was a little bit of competition there. Like, okay, I don't want my mother-in-law to think that I'm, not going to be able to feed her son. Um, but I realized that once I was in the kitchen, it was my own personal zen. You know, I get so lost in my kitchen that when my husband and son come in, they know now to give me advance warning by saying something like off screen, right? Like before they even enter into the kitchen, they got to be like, <clears throat> because so many times they'll startle me and I would just get so angry and so mad. I was like, don't do that to me. I mean, I have a heart attack. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, being in corporate America spoiled me. I was eating at five-star restaurants, Michelin-rated restaurants, traveling to, you know, Vienna what? and Germany and all, this other, all these other places that were amazing. And so my husband hates taking me to restaurants because he'll know that if it doesn't, fit my palate to my expertise it's like a downer for the rest of the evening you and, my and belong actually because he works for oracle and uh he travels all the time and he's very particular about restaurants i mean he is to a t like there's a prima donna about him which i find a little problematic but but i think <laughs> it's kind of funny because he would ask the waiter like where is the salmon coming from and i'm like are you seriously asking this question here <laughs> so i don't know i don't i hope I, I'm not that bad. Like I will totally go into dive um, hole in the wall places. I love going to New York and going to Chinatown and finding these little tiny noodle um, restaurants, right? I don't care how much the food costs. I almost don't care where the food comes from, but you're a restaurant and you need to know how to cook your food well, right? And um, so that's one of my things is it has to taste what good it has to balance and uh, be prepared well you know i don't want to bite into it and it's like raw and mushy for example right Speaking or tough that, uh, is your son a big fan of durian <laughs> <laughs> come on randy everybody's a fan of durian <laughs> it stinks so bad and it tastes so good <laughs> A quick background there. Uh, you had a little durian challenge where you were feeding, where you were attempting to feed your cat, and you had your son try out a durian smoothie, which you know he was nonchalant. He's like, "Oh, yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm pretty sure I'll like it." And he literally just gagged, and he like went to the sink and just tried to wash his mouth clean of it. And you were doing it to other folks. Some people were okay with it, 
and some people not so much. Do you think you're gonna do another Durian challenge? Because it was quite hilarious. I, I I must say I I don't think you're the only one that's done this. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of Asian YouTubers out there doing this, but <laughs> I have... I need to find new unsuspecting people because you, you have though. So you have plenty of people <laughs> that you can have your victims. Oh my gosh, I should do it to my coworkers at work. <laughs> Uh, yeah, with my son, it's like, he loves smoothies. I'm always making him smoothies. And, um, so he was very excited to try the, the new durian smoothie. I, and I was surprised he didn't smell it first, but you know, and with the smooth, with durian, it, it takes a second for you to really taste the aftertaste of it or smell it. Right. So yeah, he pretty much vomited in his mouth and went into dry heaves. <laughs> I tested it out on two uh, MMA fighters also at the gym and uh, one was his um, one of them didn't try it because he asked the right question he asked me what was in it because he's allergic to certain fruits and nuts right and so that saved him but the other gal Mitzi she she was a beast she just jumped right on right on in and then again nearly threw up all over the floor <laughs> it was bad but yeah I I totally would love to do that again. I just need to find unsuspecting people that hasn't seen the video and doesn't know what I'm up to. <laughs> you know how to disarm them. You know, you know how to disarm the, the strongest of the pack, right? So now you know what the secret weapon is. And actually, like for me, I actually like durian if it's like warm and, and on the sticky rice. That to me is the best. I don't know if I could do the ice cream. It feels kind of weird to me. Really? Warm. We're opposite there. Yeah, if it's like warm and put it on the sticky rice, Sure, I'll eat that. I'll eat that up. But yeah, I'm I'm very particular, you know. I mean, yeah, the smell is a little sensitive, but I had gotten so used to it because I would go to little Asia and Argyle or little Vietnam over in Chicago and you could smell it practically mm. everywhere. So I got used to it. But yeah, I know for other folks it's incredibly pungent, it's repulsive to them and and um and if you ever want to like murder someone just <laughs> You know, and just now I know. If there's, you know, like, okay, we'll take this. <laughs> That's right. If I really don't like anybody, well, you know, here's the thing: is that people expect good food from me now, you know, and so they'll be pretty unsuspecting. I think they're gonna think everything I give them is gonna be good, but then I'm afraid, like that one time, they're gonna be like, oh hell no, and they're gonna think that I suck at like my food may look good, but it tastes like crap. <laughs> have to like, you know draw them into your other best meals and then yeah desserts yes and, and then for dessert <laughs> ooh la la <laughs> yeah and so can we follow you where can we uh follow your work i am most active on uh facebook and instagram but um i think instagram is probably a good place to go it's amy underscore m underscore lee and that's lee with one e m as in mary so start there, Amy underscore M underscore Lee on Instagram. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've been like looking forward to talking to you since day one when we first uh, connected. And I'm really excited to hear about your journey and, and hearing about the success of your three books. I think this is just amazing that you were able to get them hammered out and have it be accessible to folks. And I really hope that people get a chance to uh, to support this book, uh, to get Snow in Vietnam, 
snow in Seattle, and now uh, the snow cookbooks. So get them for Christmas. Yeah, thank you, Randy. Yeah, get them for any holiday and, you know, anniversary. I think this is a wonderful. Books make great gifts. And actually, Snow's Kitchen was written in 30 days, believe it or not, because I did the NaNoWriMo thing. So, wow. yeah. So if anything, please just buy the third book because that I slaved over that one for 30 days. <laughs> Congratulations on Thank it. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, the conversation once again. So best of luck to you this upcoming year. And uh, we'll hear more from you uh, as time goes on. So continue the great work, Amy. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, my friend. And you too. I can't wait for the next season and uh, see how far and what you do with your show. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening and be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on the Bunby Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. <laughs>